This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS section on medical education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, Associate Professor, Medical Intensivist, and Pulmonary Critical Care APD at New York University. And today we'll be discussing the ATS Scholar Brief Report entitled Financial Education in U.S. Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Programs. I'm joined by the lead author of the paper, Dr. Dustin Krutzinger. Dr. Krutzinger is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where he practices pulmonary and critical care medicine. His primary research focus is on the equitable, ethical, and efficient E conduct of critical care trials. However, he is also passionate about financial education for medical students, residents, and fellows, and has received grant funding from both UNMC and the ATS to support research in the area of financial education for medical trainees. Dustin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I want to dive in, but I want to place your article in the proper context. Now, when it comes to finance, finances and financial education, I grew up in a world where, you know, none of this was taught to me in, in medical school. I, I remember, you know, learning physiology, pathophysiology, anatomy, and then clinical rotations in, in you know, the trainee phase. And so it's something that it's not surprising that physicians would have a lack of, of kind of financial education. And obviously, there's a lot of costs associated with medical school. And so it's also not surprising that there might be financial constraints that are there. But, you know, what is the state currently? And it would be great if you could put it into the kind of current context of the financial problems that our graduate trainees are facing, as well as their current state of financial education. Yeah, I, I share your experience as well. Really, no financial training throughout all of my medical training and undergrad. And it's unfortunate because, you know, we have so much to learn. So it's understandable that this is kind of takes a, a, a back burner, uh, so to speak. But there's such a need for physicians and especially those in longer training like we have in pulmonary critical care. The average medical student comes out with $200,000 in debt for their education. And then we've also lost so much time during training. Some people's training is a little bit longer or shorter. I'll just give my example. You know, four years of an undergrad, two years of a master's, four years of med school, four years of residency, and three and a half years of fellowship. So 17 Hmm. years of training making either zero money or relatively low income during training. And that's lost years that our professional peers are taking the advantage of and having the opportunity to invest for their financial future and their retirement. So it's really hard to make up for 10 to 15 or more years of lost compounding growth for retirement planning. You know, The other things that we have to face as a profession is disability and burnout. You know, we put all this effort and time in our education as well as money to finance our education. And the promise is that there's going to be a decent paycheck at the end of the day, right? But disability can wipe all that out. Burnout can wipe all that out. So we're really in a situation where we have to prepare ourselves to like, 
to protect that investment we've made in ourselves, as well as each dollar that we bring in once we finish training, there's competition for that dollar. Do I pay down my education debt? Do I put it towards retirement? And uh, a lot of us have been putting off all these things that we've been wanting to do. And so spending is a, a big part of that as well. <laughs> so there's competition for our dollar. And and lastly, like we're making decent money after training and we're busy and we don't have the financial background oftentimes. And so we're targets for people who want to take advantage of of that situation and offer their services, which may or may not be in our best interest. Wow. Yeah. Sobering, sobering thoughts yeah, from both yeah. sides uh, of the training landscape and as a faculty side of things uh, as well. And, you know, so as an APD, I'm also thinking that my fellows have so much to learn. There's so much on their plate and every day seems more. There's more evidence-based medicine, more articles for them to read, more skill sets for them to gain, you know, new emerging technologies, uh, the point of care ultrasound, advanced echo, so forth. And so, you know, why, what's the case? What make the case of why financial education is something that training programs need to provide as opposed to something that should be on the individual or their families and so forth to provide that? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that, and we'll get into the results of the survey in a moment, like program directors seem to agree that this is something that should be provided during training. Residents and fellows feel like this is something that they wish they are provided during training. And so everyone seems to be in agreement that it's a need. Why is that a need or why should this need be elevated to the point of, of action on the behalf of the program directors? Well, I see this as, as a significant wellness issue. Like I'm not in to this education to make doctors richer that's not my motivation. My motivation is really to reduce the stress that financial issues may have on physicians. That way they have this resiliency, this financial resiliency to combat things like burnout. We know that there was a study of pulmonary critical care fellows a couple of years back, which showed the association between the amount of financial stress that they have in their lives, mainly education debt and depression and burnout. So there's a clear mm -hmm. wellness connection between financial stress and burnout. And the better I, I see financial education as a very practical way to combat one of the contributors towards burnout. Yeah, I think that's a, a great answer. And all throughout your paper, you talk about this marriage of, and you call it a financial wellness education. It's not just financial education, but financial wellness. And I think that is something that pushes the envelope for me, because when I tie it to the wellness concern for my trainees and their future, then I, I think it makes it much more relatable to me as far as why this should be something taken under the the responsibility, at least in part, by the training programs themselves. So you engaged in this program director survey nationally. I think it was something on the order of 48 programs uh, ultimately responded back. And, you know, what were the goals? What, what, what did you hope to accomplish by, you know, sending out and distributing this survey? Yeah, so it was meant mainly as a needs assessment to understand, do program directors share the opinion that this is important? What are they currently offering? Maybe all the programs have something that, that I'm not aware of. And so there's not a need to, to build something. And then, you know, what do they see as important? 
and what are the barriers that they face to implement something if if they so desire? Great. Yeah, so it's really understanding the the basis of it. It's interesting, right? It has not been really looked at well and, and really better characterizing where we stand. That's great. And then, so what were those initial findings? You kind of mentioned, you know, you started to mention some of them. So what were those initial findings that you found from the survey results? Yeah, over 90% of the program directors agreed that this was important to provide to their fellows. And yet only one in eight programs had something that they required the fellows to, to take. About 50% had something that was optional for them to, to take. And a third of them had no resources at all provided to fellows for financial wellness education. Interesting, you know, not not robust, you know, in terms of, you know, what's what's there for, for them already, I guess. And then from the PD's perspective, you know, what were, I think the, you know, who did they think should be responsible for this trainee financial wellness education. You kind of mentioned it, and I'm just wondering, you know, what what were the findings that were there? Yeah, they definitely felt that it was a shared responsibility, but a little over half of them felt like GME held the majority of the responsibility. And some of the quotes that reinforced that were thoughts about thinking that all the fellows or all the residents should have a similar experience and a similar education in this area. So many felt like that GME had the bulk of the responsibility, but about half of them also felt like the fellowship program themselves had some responsibility to provide it. And they also recognized that the fellows themselves need to have some personal responsibility mm -hmm. towards educating themselves in this area. So really it's a shared responsibility among everyone involved. And I think that, you know, makes sense. There's probably a lot of commonality amongst all the trainees. So there should be some kind of a core, you know, curriculum or something that would be advantageous to all of them. And then there's something that's individualistic about your own scenarios and situations that would probably be unique to the length of your fellowship or training phase versus, uh, and then others past backgrounds, how much debt different people have and so forth. And then, so when we talk about financial education, you know, kind of curriculum, I guess, you know, what do the PDs think were high yield areas or topics that should go into this curriculum? Well, probably no surprise, considering that medical students come out of school with over $200,000 in debt right now. They felt like debt and loan repayment and loan forgiveness programs were very high on the priority list that we need to be teaching our fellows about. Additionally, things like life and disability insurance were important. And then kind of in the middle ground were things about retirement and asset allocation and, and how do you save for retirement? It's a lot of very practical issues right from the from the get-go. for yep. And the things that are weighing on their minds in the immediate period of time, as you kind of talked about, where do they put that dollar that they're making into which of those buckets? And so I, I think that thinking short-term and long-term is, is, you know, it makes makes a lot of conceptual sense. And then I guess the next question is, how are you delivering this, you know, this uh, this curriculum? Because let's say you, you have these different content areas, these different buckets, you know, talk to me about the delivery of that, the format, who's doing the teaching more specifically. Yeah, so what they desired is some kind of 
shared resource that can be done asynchronously with their fellows on their own time. That way it's it's nice and flexible and it can be shared across programs, whether that's recorded lectures or some kind of online module system. That seems to be the the modality that they felt would be most beneficial for their fellows. As far as who teaches it, you know, we'll get into the barriers in a moment, but one of the the, the barriers is finding trustworthy people to deliver the content. Mm-hmm. And so that that remains a big issue with the programs. Yeah, so on each of them, I'm thinking it's interesting asynchronously to do that. I, I, I think there's probably different aspects of that is that my fellows, you know, they're sometimes in very busy uh, critical care ICU situations. They're probably not going to hear the message. They're not kind of situated for that at that time. So that ability to do it asynchronously when they want to and are ready for that makes some sense. There's some anonymity types of, of things when you're on a module as opposed to in a big group and being like, I actually have $300,000 of debt and raising your hand, you know, so I could understand some of some of that. That's kind of interesting. And then the kind of delivery factors. Yeah, no, I, I, I do wonder how many people, you know, particularly from a programmatic standpoint, feel comfortable in teaching or detailing, you know, these different topical areas, sharing their histories uh, as well. And so that's that's definitely, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more during the barriers as well. And and so I guess that's probably a good kind of segue into that topic is kind of the barriers for, you know, if you found these content areas, you're thinking a little bit more asynchronously, and you're starting to think about who's going to actually be engaging and teaching this material. So what are the barriers that, that stop others from, from implementing a financial wellness education curriculum? Yeah, I think... Over, We found that over half of the respondents personally did not feel comfortable doing it, whether that's because they don't feel like they know enough to, mm-hmm. to teach others. That could be part of it. There may also be some hesitation feeling that they might have some responsibility or, you know, might have some may, maybe some legal issues about giving financial advice. So there's certainly that. They're also really hesitant to give the platform to those who offer to give this service for free. I think a couple quotes is is really helpful in this. And, and if you don't mind, I'll just read yes, those. Please. So, so one program director said, we have some faculty who are willing to give educational talks on financial wellness. However, I have no way of vetting that they are giving good and accurate information hmm. or advice. And I'm reticent to give them this platform. So that was one program director. Another said, it's very difficult to find financial experts that have the fiduciary responsibility to the client. Most who offer free services don't have the best financial interest of the client in mind. Instead, they are focused on their own profit. So they're really skeptical of either financial advisors or even other faculty who say, hey, I'll give you, I'll give a talk because they're worried that it's a sales pitch in disguise. Yeah, I think those are definitely two of the concerns that I have from a, as a as an APD. I definitely have faculty who who want to give some of these talks. We use friends, friends of friends, you know, to to help with some of the these topical areas, some books, other things of of that nature for them. But it's not necessarily vetted by me directly, so that becomes a, a bit of a concern. Is that can we trust it as well? Are there ways do you you see to overcome? 
that that specific barrier, by the way? You know, I think that that is something that is a key next step in this process is to say, well, what would make it trustworthy? Would the endorsement of ATS or AAMC having reviewed the material or the curriculum and given the the okay, is it some kind of other peer review process where if enough trustworthy people kind of review it and give their stamp of approval that it will be seen as trustworthy at a broader, uh, you know, in a broader sense. So I think that that's definitely a question that I have for next steps is as myself and, and there are others who are trying to develop some kind of curriculum that can be helpful in this area. Like what would it take to get like a stamp of approval to, mm-hmm. of trustworthiness for, for any, any curriculum? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point is, in a curriculum that's kind of generalizable, trustworthy, kind of, you know, vetted or, or you know, curated type of, of materials that people could use. I think that would be a fantastic asset for, and it's interesting, it's not just pump crit care, right? It's it's so, you know, all of our trainees, even our junior faculty. So I think that there's such a, a need in that area. Are there other areas that, you know, or other questions that you feel that are next steps that come off uh, and build off of your survey? Yeah, I mean, like anything, this is an intervention and we want to know if it changes outcomes. I'm pretty convinced that by providing financial literacy education that that people's that trainees and early physicians will have a reduced financial stress and that will be positive on their wellness, but there's limited data to say that that will happen for sure. Interestingly, there's one study from a program of OBGYN residents that showed an increase in some wellness measures with the implementation of of a financial wellness curriculum. And so there's some promising preliminary data out there, but it'd be great to see, you know, some higher level of evidence, either reproduce those kind of studies, or even my dream would be a randomized trial of this to show that, that implementing this does make a difference in fellows and early physicians' financial wellness. Hmm. No, that's a great point is, right, you, you, there's a, a need that's there, but, you know, do, does this fill that need and result in intangible benefits on the wellness side of things, financially, and so forth. So definitely, and then also just bridging from OBGYN over to us in, in Pump Creek Care is probably the simplest, easiest place to, to reproduce that study into, you know. You had, I guess, I'm just wondering about kind of resources and advice. You know, you've been doing this for for a while and engaged in this, but any advice or resources that you'd recommend for programs who, you know, have seen the light, think this is of importance and want to create their own financial wellness curriculum? Yeah, I think as a starting point, I we recently published in Academic Medicine in May of 2023, a systematic review of of financial wellness education that's been published throughout medical training. And so you could look at that paper to get an idea of what's out there. Maybe some of the curriculum looks more appealing to you and you can dig into those papers for more details. A few of them are published on the MedEd portal. And so you can get some more free resources there as far as what curriculum and resources they had there. And then ask around at your institution to see what other residencies and fellowships are doing and see if they have 
folks in those programs that uh, have been given these talks and seem trustworthy and giving good advice, a starting point for whatever reason, it seems like emergency medicine, anesthesia, and radiology, those three specialties seem to have an over representation in the, in the physician financial wellness circle. And so maybe reaching out to those folks and seeing, you know, if they are doing something for their residents or their fellows, is that something that they can bring to you or can you share those resources and, and put your heads together and come up with something? And then finally, I, I mentioned that that my, our group is trying to develop something that's going to be shareable. It's not quite ready for prime time yet. So I don't have that resource to share as of this recording, but hopefully in the next year or two, it'll be ready to be a shareable resource for others. Fantastic. Yeah, Godspeed with that, uh, definitely. <laughs> Be very useful when when it is crafted. So yeah, I'm, I mean, in the short term, though, really being collaborative, utilizing with any other thing that's emerging is just, it doesn't have to happen just, you know, by yourself, you know, but utilizing all the resources that are available in at your institution, also looking into kind of the, the literature as kind of, you know, a, a backdrop for or a, fun, a foundation for some of this stuff as well. I think that's great. Do you have any sense of, you know, we're talking about curriculum and so far we've been vague. We've talked about some topics and so forth. And I'm just wondering what type of time commitment do you think is reasonable, particularly as an initial foray into creating a curriculum based on financial wellness? Yeah. So I think that I don't want a, like a huge time commitment to be a barrier, right? If you're convinced that you're going to need 10 or 20 hours worth of content in order to provide something like that's a big lift to provide and might keep people from even starting. So I think an hour or two at a minimum, just to introduce the concepts, you know, identify that we have unique needs, we have unique barriers and start to introduce the kind of things that, that are high yield and, as as we mentioned before, this is a shared responsibility, right? That some of this relies on us as early faculty or and as trainees to self-educate ourselves as well. So, you know, a couple hours to introduce the need, point out the barriers, give some resources, and let them kind of learn on their own after that is probably a place to start. And that you can build on that. You know, we're not trying to make financial experts out of our pulmonary critical care fellows. Uh, we just want them to to start on the right foot once they have that step up and then come after training and and have those that competition for each dollar to understand the implication of, of what to do with that. Because what I what I'm fearful of is that once you finish training, if you don't have a plan, you can get pretty far behind pretty quickly. And you don't have, and, and we're already far behind with our long training. So having a plan developed shortly after training is, is really key if you don't want to have to work forever, which I certainly don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. That kind of slippery slope, uh, you, you look up and 10 years have gone by and you're already behind in, in regards to that. But I think yeah. what you're saying is, is to me, just so doable of starting small and then iteratively building onto your program, depending on your kind of local needs. I think that's seemingly, you know, I think it's the recognition is probably the biggest thing is that there's a need for this and that it's part of our responsibility. And I think that then 
starts that process. Last question is really just anything else you want to share with us, you know, from whether it be your research or, you know, from this paper, anything else that you want to share with the, with the listeners? Yeah, this is especially for any fellows that might be listening. You know, if you start to look into this stuff and start to educate yourself on this, I could see that this could be stressful, right? Feel like you're way behind. You don't have much money to invest with right now during your training years. And there's just so much to learn. I would encourage you to try not to get stressed out currently over your current situation. The financial decisions you make during training aren't going to have a huge impact on your ability to retire at a decent time. But this time during your fellowship is really a key time to start to learn about this stuff and have a plan. That way, once you're done with training, you can implement a plan. So don't stress out over financial things right now, but just start to develop a plan that way That way, you can implement it after training. And I think on that optimistic and hopeful note, I think that's a great place to end the podcast. Dustin, thank you so much for spending some time with us, sharing your insights from uh, really this uh, you know important program director survey. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for us and this latest scholarly podcast. And for those podcast listeners, Dr. Krutzinger's article on financial education in U.S. pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowship programs is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Bye for now.